Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day we bring you the most noteworthy and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find a Bloomberg PL podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts, as well as at Bloomberg.com. Perhaps Mexico is off the hook with President Trump saying that tariffs there uh, are not going to be reinstated because of the ongoing progress made with immigration. However, EU exactly in the crosshairs of the president uh, with President Trump talking about a possible new round of tariffs there. Joining us now is Therese Raphael, Bloomberg Opinion Editor, covering European politics and economics, joining us from London. Therese, uh, so let's start there. What is President Trump proposing now? So President Trump uh, is proposing a about three billion of tariffs um, and, you know, what's been an escalation of the EU-US trade spat. These have to do not with uh, uh, auto imports, but um, a ongoing, long, long-standing dispute over subsidies for Boeing um, and Airbus. So the US alleges that uh, Airbus has been illegally subsidized. Uh, the EU has uh, countered that Boeing has been illegally subsidized. And this has just been uh, a dispute that's gone on and on. It's been, um, you know, in the courts. And Trump is making these uh, latest uh, uh, tariffs under WTO rules. So the WTO still needs to rule on his list in the summer. But what it seems to be, uh, you know, doing is just ratcheting up the pressure on Europe ahead of what were to be US-EU trade talks. Uh, But those now seem to have stalled. And there's this impression that Trump is like turning his, you know, attention away from China and toward Europe. So, Therese, what is the expectation in terms of the response from the European Union? Uh, I mean, the European Union has tended to respond in kind. So the last time Trump issued a list of, uh, you know, of, of items that he was going to uh, impose higher tariffs on the EU, issued a counter list. Uh, I think the EU uh, will will seek to see what the WTO says about Trump's list, but they'll be prepared. They'll be preparing their own uh, list of uh, of tariffs in response. And indeed, uh, Bank of England Governor Mark Carney was warning today that the rising uh, trade tensions, the uh, return to protectionism is going to be a hit on uh, the global economy and also on the UK economy. So, Therese, you wrote a really interesting column uh, that we were reading this morning about how President Trump uh, may be targeting Europe, but it hasn't killed the sort of world trade order and that Europe is is going ahead, uh, certainly with trade negotiations in specific regions such as Latin America. Can you give us a sense of what Europe is doing right now? Yeah, I mean, it's it's a really uh, sort of interesting progression for Europe. For so long, we've you know heard very valid criticisms of Europe as protectionist in some areas, very slow moving, bureaucratic. And yet since Donald Trump was elected, Europe has done a number of trade deals with Canada, with Mexico, with Japan. And now this deal with Mercosur, which is uh, Brazil, Argentina, Paraguay, and Uruguay. And this is a a pretty massive deal. It uh, it it slashes or completely eliminates tariffs on ninety three percent of uh, of of exports that are going between uh, Mercosur and the EU. And I think it's it 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 sends a message both to Brexiters in Britain and to Trump that says you know the EU, one of the world's you know the world's largest trade bloc, but also uh, a massive trading superpower is simply going to do things a bit differently. It is going to find alliances where it can to uphold the trade order. 
So, Therese, you mentioned uh, Brexit. I'm wondering to what extent do you think the e, uh, the UK is looking at the uh, rising trade tensions between, between the U.S. and the European Union and saying, "Gee, this trade stuff is difficult," and uh, you know, President Trump is pre- you know promising a a great trade deal with the UK once they uh, exit the European Union. Do you think people are starting to say, "Gee, maybe we don't we maybe can't take them at face value on that one"? Yeah, I mean, the Brexiters aren't saying that publicly, but certainly some of the assumptions that underscored the argument for leaving the EU are now being seriously challenged. One of those assumptions was that uh, Britain would get new trade deals, they would be advantageous trade deals, and they would be uh, they would be done fairly quickly. And that um, now looks uh, incredibly unlikely if it ever looked you know, feasible. Uh, the idea that it would roll over existing EU agreements also hasn't happened. And then seeing how Trump um, very aggressively pursues uh, what he sees to be American interests, whether it's Mexico or China, I think should give a lot of pause because if the U.S. is to do a, a trade deal with the U.K., it will be aggressively pressing the interests of American uh, poultry uh, uh, farmers, agriculture producers, and, you know, all of the other industries where the U.S. has uh, export interests and wants to see markets opened. Therese, I want to pick up on something that you were talking about previously, this deal that the EU struck with Mercosur after 20 years of talks. And I'm just wondering whether the EU is feeling somewhat emboldened by President Trump's stance in the sense that the United States is taking more of a seat when it comes to global trade talks, giving some room possibly for a European region to uh, step in. Yeah, I, I mean, I think from the EU perspective, if you know, the EU is a, a it's a block of sovereign nations, if they can't act as a block, what are they for? I think member states will begin to question what value they're getting from Europe if if the EU cannot show that it can uh, that it can it can work together to uh, improve access of EU companies to different markets. So this is a, you know, and this is a a, a a concerted effort on the part of the EU to get these these deals done, whether it's, you know, Canada, Mexico, Japan, or Mercosur. And I think it is a response to Trump. It's a response to Brexit as well. And so in that way, ironically, these, you know, populist um, forces uh, in the world are actually, you know, pushing the EU in a direction that its critics have so long said that it should move in, which is, you know, to be more market opening. And that has also required the EU to stare down its own protectionist forces, so agriculture lobbies, ethanol lobbies, and, and that sort of thing. And that, and that I think, is a very positive move for Europe. Now, whether the Mercosur deal will hold, uh, needs to be ratified by all of the member parliaments, remains to be seen. But just the fact that after 20 years of negotiations, as you said, they got to this point um, tells us a lot. Therese Raphael, thank you so much. Therese is Bloomberg Opinion Editor covering European politics and the economy. Well, U.S. automakers may report the worst first half for new vehicle sales since 2013 today, although deliveries to fleet customers will probably take some of the sting out of the weaker consumer demand. To get the latest, we turn to Michelle Krebs. Michelle is executive analyst at autotrader.com based in Detroit. Uh, Michelle, thanks so much for joining us. Just wonder if you could start off by just giving us a state of the current state of the U.S. car business. 
Sure. Uh, you know, it's still relatively strong, uh, but what we have seen in this first half, and June continued the trend, is it's been volatile and unpredictable. We've seen um, months that were far better than we expected and some that were far worse. What we do definitely see is uh, retail demand is softening, and that is being offset by higher fleet sales sales to commercial companies, um, daily rental companies, because there's uh, some advantage to adding to or replacing their fleets uh, under tax reform. So meanwhile, we are getting some initial reports, and they have been better than expected. And I'm trying to figure out how to even look at some of these readings. In other words, uh, are we looking for a bottom in the slowdown in the auto sector? Are we looking for what, what are you looking for? Um, Well, we're anticipating that the second half will be even more challenging than the first half. Our our forecast for this year is 16.8 million vehicles to be sold. That's down from 17.2, 17.3 last year. And we expect a little more softening next year. This has been a big run. We've had, this is an unprecedented uh, expansion in the economy and certainly for vehicle sales. And so we do see some softening. However, you know, 16.8 million is still a, a pretty good year. So, Michelle, just give us a sense of kind of what U.S. consumers are buying is. It's still primarily the trucks and SUVs? Correct. Uh, car sales are uh, down, have been for the last couple of years, and we have seen companies take, uh, eliminate car uh, models from their lines, like Ford, the Ford Focus and the Chevrolet Cruze are gone. Um, we are seeing uh, crossovers, those sport utility-like vehicles built on car platforms and sport utilities doing well, and trucks are having an incredible time, probably the highest truck sales in history. And a lot of that has to do with um, Fiat Chrysler's Ram division had an amazing uh month and first half, it's now moved into the second spot behind uh, uh, ahead of Chevrolet Silverado. So that's caused a lot of uh, chatter here in Detroit, the truck wars. So uh, just based on Bloomberg surveys, uh, U.S. automakers are poised to report the worst first half for new vehicle retail sales since 2013 today. Uh, We've already gotten some of those numbers. They have been uh, somewhat better than expected. I'm wondering, you said that you are expecting uh, a further slowdown in the second half why is this? Is this because of China? Is this because of just a slowing U.S. economy? Uh, slow, yes, I think a slowing U.S. economy um, and also uh, weakening retail demand. The, uh, we also expect some credit tightening, even though interest rates may go down. And we have not seen that in car loans and car prices are going up. That's creating an affordability problem for a lot of consumers. It have knocked them right out of the new car market into the used Um, So there are a lot of factors on the consumer side, but we do think uh, the sales to fleets will uh, push it up a little bit. So you mentioned just, uh, Michelle, the the used car market. Give us a sense of the the health and and the dynamics driving that market. Um, Yes, so the the used car market is very strong. Uh, We've had record leasing uh, a few years ago, and so that has created this um, all these off-lease vehicles are coming back into the market as used vehicles, and those are being snapped up. It used to be a lot of lease vehicles were actually cars. Well, now those are sport utilities and crossover vehicles, and that's exactly what the consumer wants. And if they buy it as a three-year-old vehicle, we call them nearly new, um, they get a big discount. And so that's giving people who are, are more budget-constrained a place to go to buy a vehicle new to them. 
Michelle, you, you mentioned fleet sales and how that's cushioning some of the blow and the slowdown of retail uh, sales. What's the drawback with with fleet sales? Because there is one on both the resale value side as well as just some of the deals that some of these auto manufacturers have to cut uh, with the purchasers of those fleets. That used to be the case. That is not the case anymore. It used to. We used to get the lecture, there's good fleet and there's bad fleet. Uh, the bad fleet is not that bad. If you talk to daily rental companies that are buying vehicles, they, they're complaining they're not getting the big discounts anymore. Um, so the, the automakers are being much smarter, uh, and they are not giving these huge discounts. So it actually is a pretty darn good business. Michelle Krebs, thank you so much for being with us. Michelle Krebs, executive analyst uh, with autotrader.com, which is a company of Cox Automotive based in Detroit. Eleven United States have actually legalized marijuana with Illinois becoming the latest. Joining us now to talk about that is Steve White, chief executive and founder of Harvest Health and Recreation, uh, which is a company specializing in the uh, the weed, the weed, actually. The weed. The weed. Uh, Steve, thank you so much for being with us. Can you just start by saying what Harvest Health and Recreation does? So we're one of a handful of companies that does everything along the value chain from growing cannabis to making products to selling it uh, in retail outlets and owning those retail outlets. Uh, And we are one of a a few that has a presence in many states across the U.S. So, Steve, just give us a sense of the U.S. market. Uh, How significant is that we're, you know, Illinois is now the 11th state. Just give us a sense of kind of how that rollout is progressing uh, across the U.S. It's really exciting times for uh, the cannabis industry. The way uh, we look at it is we, when you talk about the 11th state uh, to roll out a recreational program, it tells you about the potential for growth in the U.S. more than anything and the opportunities for the U.S. players. It also tells you that it's happening at a regular cadence, which tells you that there's no reason to expect that the, the changes will slow down at any point in the future. When we talk about legalization, often we're talking about medical marijuana use. How do you distinguish medical versus recreational and where the opportunities lie uh, for both? So both are are great opportunities, and usually medical precedes the recreational uh, changes. But for us, we look at, you know, medical opportunity is one where you can get in and start establishing your brand in a particular state uh, or a particular area, and then the, the change to recreation was really about a significant growth in the size of your marketplace. Um, and so we look at one as the opportunity to kind of stake our claim and then the second to really expand the business. So, Steve, you mentioned just there uh, brands. Has, has there been any brand developed within the cannabis market? Is there a Marlboro of cannabis, for example? Well, I mean, you, you kind of said it yourself at the beginning when you're talking about the 11th state to actually be able to sell to the vast majority of the population, 11 out of 50 states, it's pretty premature to declare a Marlboro um, amongst any, um, any of the brands. But what we're seeing or what we believe is that there is a, there are some conditions that are being, or some foundations that are being laid for brand development. And for us, we see it as um, acquisition of licenses and being able to communicate to those consumers because you can't communicate through normal channels. 
Uh, so picking up the licenses and developing a footprint is what we think is going to lead to it, but it's a bit premature to talk about the establishment of a Marlboro at this point. Well, talking about Marlboro, what about Philip Morris? What about Altria? I mean, they have been uh, pretty quiet with respect to their involvement in the cannabis industry, uh, but some speculate they've been making a lot of investment on their own just in this so that they can have a footprint when things get more legal and accepted. Are you concerned about that competitive pressure? Oh, I think it's all, I think it's great, and I think it's great for um, investors in the space today. Uh, when you have the opportunity, when you when you finally see um, capital pour into a market, that's great for share prices, and that's great for these businesses who many of whom have capital constraints. Um, so we look forward to it. We also, you know, we we love the fact that we've got a nice head start, and so when when there are new entrants in the market, we're ready to compete with them. So, Steve, I know we're in relatively early innings for the legalized marijuana in the U.S., but what have you and the industry learned about sales and consumption in some of the, the, the earliest states that, that legalized it? You know, that the, that the biggest, um, that the black market tells us a lot about what consumption looks like. Um, and so estimates about the size of the black market is what we hope to bring this market to in the future. And what we're really looking to do is have people transfer from the black market to the legal market. And that tells us that there is a really significant opportunity in the U.S. So uh, interesting. So Steve White, thanks so much. Steve is CEO and founder of Harvest Health and Recreation based in Tempe, Arizona, giving us the latest on the legal cannabis market in the U.S. Well, there certainly is a lot going on in the global oil space. Uh, most recently, the Organization of Petroleum Exporting Countries and 10 non-members, including Russia, agreed to continue production limits for another nine months. Oman Oil Minister Mohammad Al-Rumi told Bloomberg's Manus Krani that he hopes the deal will erode volatility. Let's take a listen. Hopefully, it will erode some of the volatility <laughs> and it will send uh, a message of clarity and uh, removal of some kind of confusion and uncertainty. And I hope, time will tell, but I hope we have achieved that. Let's bring in our next guest, Dr. Ellen Wald, president of Transversal Consulting. She's also a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Global Energy Center and a Bloomberg Opinion columnist. Uh, Dr. Wald, thanks so much for joining us. Do you agree uh, with the Oman oil minister that these production limits uh, may erode volatility in the global oil space? Well, I'm not sure they're going to erode global volatility so much as just keep things going the way they have been going, meaning that we're not necessarily going to see volatility from supply, uh, but we are seeing a lot of volatility on the demand side and also volatility from geopolitical aspects. You know, Ellen, I'm so glad that you're joining us today. I want your perspective on Russia's role in these uh, OPEC negotiations. It seems like they've held kind of the main card when it comes to determining how long the cuts will be, how steep. Is that an accurate impression? That is absolutely accurate uh, with what's going on here. In fact, Putin basically stole OPEC's thunder by announcing at the G20 that he and Mohammed bin Salman had agreed to extend the uh, production cuts 
and this was even before, this was before OPEC had met, this was before OPEC Plus had met. Um, I don't even think that Alfala and Novak had finished their their meeting before this was announced. So this was really Putin kind of stealing the thunder from OPEC. And we definitely saw that reflected in the market because uh, prices were up a little bit as the meeting went underway when everyone basically knew what the outcome was. Uh, and it's pretty clear that that was also due to just very positive market sentiment coming off of the G20 and the a meeting between Trump and President Xi. Uh, and then today, uh, we got nothing. In fact, if anything, uh, oil prices are falling. So it's pretty clear that, that the market really isn't interested in what OPEC has to say or even what OPEC has to do. Well, we're seeing, as you mentioned, oil falling again. Uh, WTI crude off about 3.7% today. Uh, just give us a sense of where inventories are in the market. I, I think the last time we spoke, we were, we were over inventory at the moment. Yeah, so it's it's actually a very interesting uh, question because it really depends on what kind of uh, measuring stick you're using to measure inventories. And um, the last we heard about American inventories, it was a big draw uh, we saw from um, from the, the EIA announced a huge draw. I think they were they drew 12 million barrels down uh, last week, and so that really helped push oil prices up about four percent last week. So uh, now we're seeing them come down. At the OPEC meeting, uh, Alfali actually said, you know, we don't really want to use this five-year average that we've been using. Uh, I, I think we should use the, uh, I think he said the, the 2010 to 2014 uh, five-year average as a benchmark. And then if you use that as a benchmark, then there's an overhang of over 240 million barrels in the world. Wow. So meanwhile, against this backdrop, as they uh, continue, the OPEC members plus Russia continue to see reduced demand and uh, anticipate further cuts in response. We do have Saudi Aramco, the state sponsored oil company of Saudi Arabia today, uh, supposedly talking with banks to reengage and start restart talks to have that initial public offering that some people had said uh, would reach two trillion dollars, although many people have said it's not going to be that big. Why are they restarting those negotiations now? So that's that's really interesting, and, and it's funny because the news broke right uh, before the OPEC plus of a press conference happened, and Alfali was supposed to be at that press conference, and then he, he mysteriously wasn't there because he had some um, meeting with the Austrian government, uh, though I suspect he was probably glad not to have to answer questions about that IPO news. So uh, what, what had happened before was that um, Aramco essentially suspended or they'd reached the end of their allotted budget for all of these bakers, and so they stopped paying them. And, and so essentially that's what prompted this idea of the IPO is on hold. In reality, once, once we, we actually got a look at Aramco's finances from the bond perspective, you could see that they were nowhere near ready to IPO in 2018 as the Crown Prince had originally suggested. And even in, in 2019, they were nowhere near ready to IPO. Uh, and now they're talking 2020, 2021. If you want to IPO, then especially if you want to IPO a company as big as Aramco, they need a lot of lead time for banks. So I'm not surprised if they think they might want to do it, that they're starting to talk to banks again. But let's see if they actually get them on payroll. So it's interesting, this on-again, off-again IPO of Saudi Aramco, again, it could be the the biggest uh, IPO of all time. But there is definitely some concerns here about uh, the valuation. Kind of what's the, you know, the valuation talk now? Is are they Have they gotten to that point? Or are they still kind of uh, using old numbers? Where are we in terms of valuation? You know, the the real the, the thing is there really isn't any there aren't any real numbers at this point. That that two trillion dollar number was kind of thrown out 
by MBS, and it was delivered in a way that actually made it seem like he wasn't necessarily even talking about uh, Aramco in particular. He was talking about the whole um, Saudi public investment fund. So, um, but but we've kind of taken that as this um, as this number for their uh, for their valuation. But it'll really depend on obviously the price of oil whenever they do uh, IPO. But also, um, they've basically subsumed Sabic, this massive petrochemicals company, and so any valuation is going to have to include all of these assets and uh, to see whether their expansion in downstream has added to their valuation. Uh, I'm not sure we're going to get to $2 trillion, not, not in this current uh, atmosphere, but they may, they may hit over a trillion, which I think is not unreasonable. So just real quick here, Ellen, I'm wondering, where do you see the next big move in oil, up or down? I, I really think that it depends on what happens with trade. I think the the information, the news that, um, that we're considering more tariffs on Europe definitely sent uh, sent oil down. And um, but if we, if we start negotiations with China, we could see that moving right back up again. Dr. Ellen Wald, thank you so much, as always, for being with us. Dr. Ellen Wald, president of Transversal Consulting, also a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Global Energy Center and a Bloomberg opinion columnist joining us from Jacksonville, Florida. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. I'm Lisa Abramowitz. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.